This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. into God's Word. Lord, we do look back and thank you over these past few weeks, and your hand has been in it, and we thank you for your presence amongst us. And Lord, as we have celebrated and thought about your birth, uh, we give you thanks, Lord, for this wonderful Advent season. Now, Lord, as we come to your Word this morning, we pray that our hearts and our minds will be open to receive, and Lord, in the midst of it all, that you will speak to us, that your Holy Spirit will plant a seed of the Word in our hearts that will give us something to encourage and to strengthen in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, Isaiah chapter 9. And the famous uh, verses here in verse 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and with justice. Amen. No one in the long history of this world has impacted more people than Jesus of Nazareth. After 2,000 years... He has more followers now than he's ever had in all of history. And that number is increasing daily. What can account for this? Others have left their mark on humanity. Others have left the legacy behind. There are others who have shaped history. People like Alexander the Great, who, in a sense, Grecianized the then-known world. Caesar Augustus, Emperor Constantine, who... To put it another way, who Christianized the then-known world. Brilliant intellects like Einstein and Newton, who altered the way of thinking for scientists and astrophysicists and mathematicians for generations. Great inventors like Thomas Edison, who made our world more exciting and innovative. Outstanding composers like Mozart, and Chopin, Brahms, whose music has thrilled the world for generations. Author, sculptors like, of course, Michelangelo and Donatello. I don't know if you've ever been to the Vatican. I don't know if you've ever walked through uh, the museums in the Vatican and seen the works of Michelangelo. It's amazing the skill that that man had. Painters like Raphael and Leonardo da Vinci and Picasso, all of these have made their mark have left a legacy that we enjoy to this day. But none can compare like Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, who never wrote a book, who never led an army, who only once traveled outside his own country, and that was his infant in exile, never held a public office, never sat on an earthly throne, and yet millions upon millions upon millions are devoted followers. And countless men and women have laid down their lives for him. What can possibly account for that. Why after 2,000 years has communist and Hindu and Buddhist and Islamic nations and governments 
are persecuting his followers and imprisoning them and putting them to death. Why is that? What is it about the founder of Christianity, the Lord Jesus, that vexes them so much? How can it be that a man from an obscure village in a backwater town, a tiny little nation that was conquered and subjugated by a, a superpower, how could he rise to such world prominence, especially since he died a criminal's death on a cross two millenniums ago? Surely any right-thinking person would have to conclude that Jesus of Nazareth was no ordinary man. He was more than a miracle worker, more than a brilliant communicator, more than a, a, a magnetic personality or a charismatic figure, much more than that. He wasn't, as some imagine, the stuff of legend. He wasn't, as some claim, some made-up Messiah, a supposed Savior. He was and he is the Son of God. Hallelujah. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. A child is born, speaks of Christmas. A son is given, speaks of Calvary. A child is born, speaks of Christ's coming. A son is given, son is given, speaks of Christ's cross. Matthew and Luke clearly set forth the story of his birth, that he was born of a virgin, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Isaiah prophesied over 700 years before that this would happen. The Apostle John was satisfied that the record that Matthew and Luke had left of Christ's advent and birth had been sufficient. And so he wrote no genealogy. In fact, he goes back right to the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then, in verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. That's his record of the advent of the incarnation. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, John was more interested in his gospel to show forth Calvary rather than Christmas his cross rather than his coming. Matthew and Luke speak of his advent. John speaks of his atonement. That's the thing that captivated John. That's what he felt that we needed to hear the most. We understood and we knew about his first coming. We knew about his advent, his incarnation. John was more concerned about Calvary and the cross and what he'd done for us there. That's why John's gospel is quite different than the other three. Because he really, really focused on who Christ was. He gives more of an in-depth record of the life of Christ on the days before he died. In fact, whenever we're studying about the Holy Spirit, we mentioned that in John 13 to 17, that meeting that Jesus had in the upper room, that uninterrupted meeting of those five chapters, it's just about one meeting. And so John is very keen just before Christ goes to the cross to, to show us who he really was and what he really came to do. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Matthew and Luke show us the child that was born, John shows us the son that was given. Matthew and Luke speak of Christmas, John speaks of Calvary. Matthew and Luke speak of his coming, John speaks of his cross. Matthew and Luke speaks of his advent, John speaks of his atonement. And it was very right that he did that because the two always go together. We can't separate them because that's the reason Jesus came. And the hymn writers love to do this. They love to put Christmas and Calvary together. 
You know, over these past few weeks, we've been singing a lot of wonderful Christmas carols. And, you know, we only sing them once a year, and they're such beautiful words to these songs. They're greatly written, some great theology in them. Uh, Charles Wesley puts it this way, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. That's Christmas. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. That's Calvary, isn't it? That God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. That's his birth. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. That's his death. Except a man be born again, Jesus said, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Philip Brooks, who wrote that beautiful Carl, O Little Town of Bethlehem that we sang just a couple of nights ago. He said, O little, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. That's Christmas, isn't it? Cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. That's Calvary. You see, the writers always connected the two together. Nahum Tate, he wrote, While shepherds watch their flocks by night. He said, To you in David's town this day is born of David's line. That's his birth. A Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this shall be the sign. That's his death, isn't it? In the 18th century, that great old hymn. Oh, come all you faithful, joyful and triumphant, to Bethlehem hasten now with glad accord. Lo, in a manger lies the king of angels. There's his birth again. Amen, Lord, we bless thee, born for our salvation. That's his death. And that great old hymn of J. Wilbur Chapman, we, we sing it today, but we've kind of modernized it. I tell you the truth, I think it was better the way we sang it the first time. Uh, I didn't see any point in modernizing it and changing it because it was really good. He wrote, One day when heaven was filled with his praises, one day when sin was as black as could be, Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin, dwelt amongst men, my example is he. That's Christmas, isn't it? And then a chorus, Living he loved me, dying he saved me, buried he carried my sins far away, rising he justified freely forever, one day is coming, O glorious day. There's Calvary. Jesus, my Savior, to Bethlehem came, born in a manger to sorrow and shame. Oh, it was wonderful. Blessed be his name, seeking for me, seeking for me. That's his birth. That's Christmas, isn't it? Jesus, my Savior, on Calvary's tree, paid the great debt, my soul he set free. Oh, it was wonderful. How could it be? Dying for me, dying for me. There's his death. And Fanny Crosby, that great hymn writer tell me the story of Jesus write on my heart every word tell me the story most precious sweetest that ever was heard tell how the angels in chorus sang as they welcomed his birth glory to God in the highest peace and good tidings on earth that's Christmas Verse 3, tell of the cross where they nailed him, dying in anguish and pain. Tell of the grave where they laid him, tell how he liveth again. Love in that story so tender, clearer than ever I see. Stay, let me weep while you whisper, love paid the ransom for me. Amen. That's Calvary. And on and on it goes. And we should never separate the two either. And so over 700 years, 750 years, Isaiah Micah spoke of how he would be born and where he would be born. And Isaiah 7 and Micah 2 speaks of his life, his death, even his burial, where he would be buried. His resurrection was foretold by the prophets. One writer said, The plan of God why Jesus came was to make guilty men godly. Isn't that nice? 
to make guilty men godly. Only God can make guilty men godly. Amen, Lord, we bless thee, born for our salvation. <laughs> Jesus was born to die for you and me. Nothing in the Bible is clearer than that one single fact today. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. And so in this glorious prophecy of Isaiah, we see much more of Christ through the eyes of the Holy Spirit's description of him. We see his deity and his humanity. A child is born, his humanity. A son is given his deity. And in, that verses we, in those verses, we saw his wonder. He's called wonderful. We see his wisdom. He's called counselor. We see his preexistence, the everlasting father or the father of eternity. We see him as the prince of peace. And also here we see him as the mighty God. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. To see him, the Lord Jesus, as Isaiah called him, the mighty God. What a leap of faith. What a revelation for Isaiah from a tiny little baby to mighty God. I, I don't think Isaiah fully understood or even came close to understanding what he was saying. How could he? How could any of us understand how he could be a tiny little baby, but he would be the mighty God as well? So he's the mighty God, truly. Mighty to do what? Mighty to create. Uh, it was last Sunday and the Sunday before we were talking about the Holy Spirit we focused on the Holy Spirit's work in creation the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit were all involved in the mighty work of creation here this morning just for a moment before we quickly pass on I want to think of the Lord Jesus the mighty God his role in creation John 1 and 3 all things were made through him and nothing was made that was made. Nothing without him was made that was made. Mm -hmm. Right from the very beginning. Ephesians 3 and 9, Paul says, God who created all things by Jesus Christ. Psalm 73 and 6, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made. Jesus in John 1 is called the word. The word who became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we told you when we talked about the Holy Spirit, how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were all involved in creation and how the Holy Spirit hovered over the face of the deep, waiting for Christ to speak the word because he is the word. He spoke the universe into existence through the power of the Holy Spirit. Eight times in Genesis 1 it records in the creation story, and God said... It also says the Spirit of God was hovering. So all three were involved in this, and Jesus Christ spoke. And when he spoke, the universe came into being. They tell us today that, that in our galaxy, there's at least 200 to maybe 400 billion stars. And in the observable universe, in other words, what we can see with our great modern telescopes both on earth and in the sky like the Hubble uh, they reckon there's another 150 billion galaxies only in the observable universe because there comes a point we can't see any further with our technology so what else is out there they don't know some say we only see 10% there's 90% we don't even know and all of that 
was created by Jesus, the mighty God. The mighty God. Every star and every planet, <clears throat> the racket now that it's not just our star has got a system, a solar system of planets. They reckon that billions of stars has got their planets that circulate around them. So there must be billions of planets, and all of them, stars, the planets, the moons, the satellites, the nebula, all of that created by the mighty God, or Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Some time ago I was driving somewhere, I forget now, but I turned the radio on, and it's very fortunate because Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield had just come on. He was in Manchester. He was speaking to about 60 school kids. And he's very articulate. He's a great communicator. And he, he, just, he just had those kids spellbound. And they were asking them all kinds of questions. <clears throat> and he told them, you know, he had flown around the Earth two and a half thousand times. You know, within every 24 hours, if he stayed up 24 hours, he would see 16 sunsets and 16 sunrises. Can you imagine that? Flying at 17,500 miles an hour, 250 miles up in the air. And he says, when you're up there, he says, the earth is like a sparkling jewel in the blackness of space. He said, it's incredible. And particularly when you do a moonwalk, or sorry, when you do a, a spacewalk, when you get out and have to fix something on the, on the spacecraft, he says, because you look down and there's this beautiful, beautiful globe in the blackness of space. He says, it's breathtaking. And he said, the amazing thing about the speed you're going, he says, if you get on a plane, say, to go from one side to America to the other, you get on the plane, you board it, the plane takes off, the stewardess comes and she gives you some nibbles and peanuts and a drink. And then maybe an hour later, maybe you watch a movie for a couple of hours. And then it's time to have your lunch. So you get your lunch. And then you maybe have a nap, a bit of a sleep. And all this time you're going over America. And then you wake up and you get your dinner. And if you're flying all night... You have another sleep and you wake up and you get your breakfast and you're still flying over America all those hours. But he says when you're up there, he says you fly over, over Africa in six minutes. Six minutes, you're over continents. He said it's amazing. He loved to take photographs. He took 40,000 photographs. He says at the start you're snap happy. He says in all your spare time you're looking at that big bubble looking down, taking photographs. So he says, after a while, you become more discerning. There's special ones you want to find. But he says, you've only got one minute to do it. And then it's gone. And you mightn't pass that same way for six weeks. So he says, you've got to plan everything. And then a teacher, I think it was, asked him a more philosophical question. He says, what, what do you think when you're up there and you look down on Earth? Well, he says, when you're on Earth, he says, you're conscious of our cultures, of our class, of our languages, of our color, we're all so different. And he says, when you're down there, it, it, it can become them and us. But he says, when you're up there, and you're looking down at this globe, in the vastness and the blackness of space, it's just us. It's only us. There's nobody else. <laughs> There's nobody else, only us. And he says, suddenly you get everything into perspective. Here we are in this tiny little globe 
which actually in the vastness of the universe is like a single grain of sand among all the seashores of all the oceans of the world. So he says, it's just us when you're up there. And it's wonderful, isn't it? Amen. You know, he's an evolutionist. He made that clear in his talk, but I don't know whether he's an atheist or an agnostic. He didn't say. But he was asked a question, is there life out there? Because that's the big question today. And, you know, there's a, there's a feeling that, and here's the argument, here's how it goes, that, well, if God created all of the universe, why in the world did he just choose one little speck of sand in the vastness of his universe to have life on? Why would he do that? If he's such a great designer, that's a bad economy of design. When there's only one place in all of the universe where there's life. And that's why there's a great search. The holy grail of space is to find life somewhere else. Because the thought of being alone in this vast universe terrifies people. But doesn't terrify the believer. The uniqueness of earth is because this is the only place in the universe where God sent his son to. Amen. And the only reason he did it is because we're here. We're here. He came to save us. That's how much he cares. That's how much he loves us. It says in John 1 and 3, all things were made by him. Colossians 1, 15 and 17, all things were created for him. Everything was created for him, to give him pleasure. Ever wonder why there's flowers blooming in the desert? that no one ever sees? Ever wonder why at the bottom of the oceans where no one ever goes, there are fish and all kinds of life? Do you ever wonder why in the darkest of jungles the most exotic birds are? Do you ever wonder why when you look into the furthest reaches of the universe there's just us? Do you ever wonder why out of seven billion people on earth there's you? Unique, different, nobody like you? because we were made for his pleasure. Revelation 4.11 in the King James says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure. They are and were created. There's your answer. You were made especially for God. God, you made you especially for him, to give him pleasure. And whenever we honor him, we give him great pleasure. I like to think that on any given Sunday morning around the world, there are untold millions and millions and millions of people who are worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the pleasure that must give him? Because <laughs> that's what you were made for. That's why you're here. That's your purpose in life, to honor him, to live for him, to love him, to serve him, to tell others about him. And so he was mighty to create. He's mighty to save. Isaiah 63 and 1. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bosra? This one who is glorious in apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness am mighty to save. <laughs> Speaking about our Lord, of course. 
Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Thank you, Lord. The man who lives the most reprobate life, who lives in the deepest and darkest of sin, can come to Christ, can be born again, and be cleansed as if he had never sinned. <laughs> Justified before God. It's a miracle, isn't it? It's the gospel. It's the most wonderful thing on earth today. Romans 5 and 9, we are saved from wrath through him. Romans 5 and 10, saved by his, by his life and by his death. Romans 10, 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. John 10, 9, Christ is the door. If any man enters in, he shall be saved. He's mighty to save. Glory to God. Fred Carrington was the son of the famous brewer, Carrington's Brewery. At one time in Victorian England was the biggest brewery in the whole land. It had hundreds of pubs all across United Kingdom, London especially. Mr. Carrington was a multi, multi, multi-millionaire. And his son, Fred, was being groomed to take over the business. And he was given the best education. In fact, he spent a whole year at Windsor at the Queen's Brewery being taught the whole thing. One day he would take over the whole thing from his father. His father would send him to the continent to expand his mind and his thinking to give him a world view of things. And he would go there. And he would enjoy that. His father was a man that was highly respected in the community. Apart from the fact that he, his business was booze, but he was highly respected in the community and went to church. But it wasn't a believer. He went out of respectability, to be seen, to be respectable, but had no interest in the things of God. And his son grew up just like him, exactly the same. In fact, his son said he didn't like these emotional preachers who got too personal. And he couldn't understand how anybody could go to these baser sorts of churches. That was his attitude. But he had a friend, Lord Garva. And Lord Garva came to him one day and says, Fred, I have become born again. I've got saved. He didn't understand what that meant. He thought, what is he talking about? I don't understand this business of getting saved, being born again. This is nonsense. That was foreign to him. But then in the winter months, he would go to Cannes in the south of France, French Riviera. And there while he was holidaying there, he met a, a young, wealthy man called William Rainsworth. And in the process of time there, they were there for months, they struck up a friendship. And they got very close together as friends. They would eat together, they would talk together, they would travel together, they would be together. It was just a great, great friendship. And, and then... At the end of the time there, Fred said to this fellow Rainsworth, he says, listen, I'm going home. Whenever you come back to England, why did you come and stay with me on my father's estate in Wimbledon? That would be lovely now that we're friends. And William Rainsworth said, well, Fred, that, that's very kind of you, but I, I really should tell you something. 
about myself. I should have told you before, but now that we're parting, I better tell you now. What is it? He says, well, I'm a born-again Christian. I'm saved. Huh, Fred thought. That's a strange thing. My oldest friend and now my newest friend is saying they're born again. What does this mean? In fact, they said to Rainsworth, he says, you shouldn't have told me that because now you've spoiled everything. <laughs> so Rainsworth realized that he wasn't probably going to make much advance with him at that point. So he said, I'll tell you what he said. He said, I want you to do one thing for me and one thing only. Promise me you will do this and I'll leave it with you. What is it? He said, read John chapter 3. That's all. Just John chapter 3 in the Bible. That's all. Promise me you'll do that? Yes, I promise. I'll do that. And so, that night in his hotel room, he decided he was impatient. And he was a bit curious now because two of his friends had talked about being born again. He thought, I'll read John 3.16. I'll read John 3. Never read it before. And he started to read. And he got down to verse 16. And he couldn't go any further. And he says, the Holy Spirit of God convicted my eternal soul to the place where I got on my knees beside my bed and I became born again. Hallelujah. <laughs> Just by reading that one verse. And so he went home. A different person that he went and he heard about, just at home, he heard about a man who was helping young illiterate boys and girls. And Fred was well educated, and he thought, I think I'll help this guy. And he began to help him. And it was good. And then it gave him an idea. He thought, you know, there's lots of, of children and young boys and girls in this area, and they don't know Christ. They don't know the Savior. Now that I know him, I want to tell them. And so he hired out this little building. It was a kind of a little barn with a loft. And he invited them. And it was packed. And they were getting saved. Uh, and, and he thought, well, I need more room. So he got another young man to come with him who was a, an athlete, who was a runner, who was well known. And together they got a bigger place. Uh, it was like a school, a school room that held about 300. And again, they invited local children to come. It was like a Sunday school. And it was packed. They couldn't get any more in, and they were getting saved. And they thought, well, better use something bigger than this. And so they rented a big tent. They held 1,400 people, and they put chandeliers on it, and they got a piece of ground. And it got packed. 1,400 people were coming, kids coming, and they were getting saved. And their parents were coming, and they were getting saved. His father didn't like it. His father didn't like it. His father called him in for a talk. And Fred says, Dad, I have something to tell you. Something happened to me. When he came home from England, and he told his dad this. He says, I was walking through the east end of London. And he says, there was a pub called the Rising Sun. And there was a mother with her two children standing outside the door of the Rising Sun. And she was shouting for the husband father of the children to come and give her some money to feed their children and the father come out of that pub drunk and he looked at them for a moment and he stepped out and he took his fist and he battered them to the ground he went back into the pub he says dad at that moment at that moment 
when I saw what had happened. I couldn't say anything. I couldn't do anything because above the name of the rising sun in gold letters was my name, Carrington. And so I said in my heart, as if I was talking to that drunk father, I said in my heart, that punch that knocked your wife and children to the ground has just knocked me out of the brewery business. I can't do it anymore. I cannot go back. So, Dad, from this moment, I resign. I'm done with it. I have no interest in it. And the dad immediately cut his allowance, which was £1,000 a week in Victorian England, was a fortune. He immediately cut it off him, and instantly he removed him from his will. But Fred didn't care, because he had the Lord, and he was doing a great work for him. And so see it, Spurgeon heard about the tent and encouraged him to go bigger, but he had no money. But then the, the head of Bartley's bank at the time heard about it too, and he says, I'll give you some money to get a building. And then Lord Salisbury heard about it and says, I'll give you some money. And then an MP heard, I'll give you some money. And then they bought a massive building, built it, that held 5,000 people. And that building was filled. And every night for 50 years, there was meetings in that building. And Saturday night was prayer meeting night and testimony night of the hundreds of people who were coming to Christ. <laughs> Fred's father fell of a horse. He was dying on his deathbed. Sent for the family. Sent for Fred. And he said to the rest of the family, you can all leave the room, only Fred to stay. He knows about these things. And Fred and the dad talked, and then they prayed, and they led him to the Lord before he died. Amen. He's mighty to save, isn't he? Amen. He's mighty to save. <coughs> this is our Savior who's mighty to save. Hallelujah. He's mighty to deliver, isn't he? Remember how Jesus went across Sea of Galilee to Gadara, the country of the Gadarenes, and how that poor man was just out of his mind, full of demonic spirits, had supernatural powers that couldn't even bind him. He would break them to elastic bands. He was a self-harmer. He was cutting himself. He had no dignity. He ran about naked in the tombs. And Jesus went and set him free. Because he's mighty to deliver. Amen. He's mighty to save. Amen. He was found clothed and sitting and in his right mind. <laughs> he wanted to follow Jesus to the ends of the earth. Jesus says, no, go back home. Tell him what the Lord has done for you. He's mighty to save. He's mighty to deliver. Amen. He's the conqueror of death and demons and disease. Amen. He's mighty to save. And so Isaiah, 750 years before Christ came to this earth, prophesied that he would come. That he would come. And he came. Other prophets prophesied that he would come back again. And he will come back again. Hallelujah. But he's mighty to save today. And you have a testimony today. Maybe not as dramatic as Fred Carrington. But still, you have a testimony that shows that he's still mighty to save. 
He saved us, didn't he? And he's still saving. This very day, all over the world, people will come to Christ. He will save their eternal souls. 2,000 years later, he's still doing it. It's supernatural, isn't it? It's a work of God. And so there we have Christ today. The wonder of Jesus. What a wonder he is. No wonder people become his followers because there's nobody like him. <laughs> there's nobody can change a life like him. I feel sorry for those who have no hope. Clifford and I were just talking before the service started and just came in the conversation. Clifford said, he says, imagine if you were dying and you didn't know Christ and you're going out into eternity. Can you imagine what that would be like? I can't, I can't even begin to think of that. And yet there's people who do. And there's people who will die in their deathbed and still refuse him. Can't understand that. But thank God for his salvation today. He's mighty to save. I want to continue this tonight, by the way. Because that's our text today. Isaiah 6, 9 and 6 and 7. It says, The government shall be upon his shoulder. government of this world the government of your life shall be upon his shoulder we're no safer hand sure we're not the mighty God will govern this world and he will govern your life amen yeah. Lord we thank you that you did come to this earth and over this advent season we have been reminded again and again of your coming but we thank you today that you came with purpose. You came with a mission. That those that you have chosen, those that your Holy Spirit has spoken to, may be saved. Born again of the Holy Spirit. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're a life giver a life changer. We bless you for our testimonies today. We have proven that you have changed our lives. It's only by your grace and mercy and we're so grateful for it today. In Christ's name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.